Okay. All right. So Christmas is coming. I know Christmas is a word that brings up all kinds of, of uh, ideas, images, thoughts in our lives. We think of family, we think of food, we think of travel. We think of holiday lights and color and cheer. But also there's something in the Christmas story, I think a lot of times when we think of the Christmas story, well, a lot of times we overlook this. And this is, is the idea of worship. You know, if you think a moment for what the word worship means to you, just unpack it a little bit in your mind. For many of us, worship may have to do with music or singing or raising hands or a kind of spiritual thing, you know, a musical thing that we do. For some of you, worship is simply it's attending a church service, uh, a religious service, like you came to worship this weekend. That's great. For some of you, worship is a break. When you come to church, you drop your kids off for an hour and a half and you think, man, think, man there is a God. Thank you, God. For that, right? That, we, we have ideas of worship, but at its core, at its core, worship is a response. I want you to understand this. I think this is such a powerful thought. Worship is responding to God for who he is and for what he has done. That is what worship is. It's a response. It's not necessarily an action. I mean, it's like an action, but it's not something we, we're responding to something. It's a response based on who you see God to be and what you think God has done, what you understand God has done. So today, what are we doing? This is what we call corporate worship. We gather together as a part of the body of Christ. We sing, we pray, we, we, we give, we study God's word. We spend some time even fellowshipping and enjoying one another's company. All of that is encompassed in the idea of worship. This is corporate worship. You can worship personally. People always ask me that. Can I just yes, you can worship at work. You can worship in your car. You can worship personally. But I want you to see that it's not the same thing as corporate worship. Because God commands us to worship together like this, to gather together on a regular basis, because he is especially in that. The sum is greater than the parts. It's not just all of us here. God becomes involved and something powerful is going on when we worship together. So, there's stories in the Bible, and this is one of them, that talk about worship and key on that for us. And so when we look at this, that passage I read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, I'm just going to read the first two, um, during the time of King Herod. Now, this is giving us information. It's giving us information about a time and about a place. It's very accurate information. I get this a lot of times with people. They say, you treat this like it's an accurate historical document. And I tell them I do, and the reason is because I have shown, I've seen through studies that it is an accurate historical document. If you're struggling with that, I have a book, a simple, easy book, that you can read on the historical accuracy of the four Gospels in the book of Acts that is incredible. I've spoken on it. The, uh, the author of the book gave me permission to talk about it and use his data and stuff like that. Uh, but I can give you the book. It's, it's a pretty easy read and inexpensive, and it's just powerful. I believe this is historical, and it is accurate. I don't believe that it is, has any instances where it is not. Okay, so during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, we have all kinds of ideas on that, right? You read that passage, this doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you how many Magi. It doesn't tell you that they rode camels. It doesn't tell you they took a wrong turn. Here they are in Birmingham, England. Somehow they got lost. What I love about, 
What I, and this is me. This is what I love about this picture is I'm looking at it and I'm noticing things. And so here's the three wise men on their camels. And right behind the first one is a sign. CCC TV is active here. They're being recorded. They're being watched because wise men are known as being thieves. That's what I think it is, maybe. I don't know. But they, they might have looked something like that. They might have been on camels. I don't know. Um, I had the privilege of going to a nice place to eat. I was treated to a nice place to eat the other night, and camel was on the menu. And that made me think, because this is how I am. I saw camels on the menu, and my first thought was, did those wise men take extra camels to eat? Wow, that changes the whole story, right? No. So anyways, that's just me. So we're looking at this word worship. These men came. Who are they? Why are they here? They're experts in the stars. We know from the word that they, they were some sort of astronomers or astrologers. They were experts in the stars. Um, they would have been looked down upon by the Jews as, as, uh, as people who dabbled in magic, as magicians. Magi kind of translation that goes towards that way. They would have been looked down upon as magicians of people who were involved in the dark arts, right? But they've seen something. They've seen something of great import, highly unusual, and it motivated them to take a long, dangerous journey. The text says they're from the east. Probably the, the type of gifts they brought would probably point towards the Arabian Peninsula, you know, based on what they brought. But the important detail is they were coming to Jerusalem. They were coming to Israel, and they were foreigners. They were outsiders. Again, the Jews would have looked down upon them. They would have called them pagans. And they were seeking this child. They were seeking what they thought was the king of the Jews. But they realized something. This is an entirely different kind of king than that they would be familiar with. Because kings in those days, where were they born? They were born in important countries. They were born in important cities. They were born to important, powerful families. That's what, if they went anywhere else to honor a king, that's what they would have been looking for and would have found. And here is something totally different a totally unimportant country, a totally unimportant, not city, a little tiny town, the town of Bethlehem, a totally un poor, relatively, in that sense, unimportant family. This is a different kind of king. And I think they're beginning, this is not normal for them. This is something special. Therefore, they have come to worship. They think there's some divinity here. And so there was a king who was the king of Israel, who is not happy about this idea because he's thinking, this is my replacement, and that's King Herod. Now, I can't go into detail. King Herod was an awful person. He was an awful king. He was hated by the Jews. The Romans loved him because he kept the Jews subjugated, and he did it through a couple of ways. He was ruthless. He taxed them heavily, so they barely were, they were subsisting, and when you're subsisting, you have less time, ability, or money to revolt. And so he was ruthless, they were subsisting, and, and he, he just ruled with an iron hand. He was a suspicious man, he was an uh, evil man. And this, we don't get, this is not in the Bible, this is one, just one illustration of how evil he was. He knew when he was getting close to death, he knew he was dying. And he also knew this, everyone was going to rejoice when Herod died. And he hated that idea. And so he had the Romans arrest 50 of the most important rabbis, teachers, and leaders in Israel 
And he said, on the day I die, kill them all so there will be weeping the day I die. That's what he did. Josephus tells us all about that. It's also confirmed in another other in the Talmud. So he, that's the kind of man he was, right? And we see this in his reaction, right? When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's hearing they're looking for this king. <clears throat> he's not excited about it. He's disturbed. That word disturbed is a very strong word. It means to be shook up, to be anxious, to be worried, to be angry. And not only just him, all of Jerusalem. Why? Because everybody knows when Herod gets mad, bad things happen to everyone. So the whole city is upset about this. He's been caught unawares. He did not know about it. He has this tremendous uh, security apparatus and spies, and he's thinking, why did no one tell me this? I got these three guys coming out of another country telling me this. And so it's spreading, and he's, he's upset. And these are the reactions that we see when people uh, decide what to do about Jesus. The priests, Herod, and the wise men. Let me just, real quick, what does Herod do? He gets angry. He gets very angry. He's upset. He's full of hate. The priests, we see from here and from their actions at the beginning of Jesus' life, they could care less. They were indifferent. Didn't bother them. They've got this great gig going on where they're making all this money in the temple. One little kid in Bethlehem is no threat to them. That's what they thought. When they started to perceive him as a threat, they moved to anger. They went from indifference to anger. And then we see the wise men, they decide to worship. They decide to worship. And I think this can apply to us today. What is your reaction to Jesus? Because if I'm honest, sometimes I'm kind of indifferent. It doesn't affect me like probably it should. And I worry about that because that's a dangerous place to be. <clears throat> I want to worship. I want that to be primary in my life. And so here comes these men. They come to worship. They seek him. They bring gifts. They want to celebrate him. And Herod searches for information. He asks them, where is he supposed to be born? And they tell him, in Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. That's from Micah 5. This is well known among the Jews. This is no secret. Everyone knew the Messiah was supposed to come out of Bethlehem. Micah 5 was very clear. And so Bethlehem is only five miles away. And I think what Herod is thinking is, this is easy striking distance. This is not something I'm going to have to struggle with. I just need to get some spies there. And I got these guys going. And so what does he do? We, we just read it. Herod called them together. He called them secretly. I love that Matthew put that in because this is Herod. Herod has figured out how to stop leaks. You know, our government, for the, especially the past 30 years, leaks are commonplace. And no one has figured out how to stop them. Herod figured out how to stop them. He goes and meets with these, these wise men secretly. Nobody else knows what he's doing. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Why? Because he's calculating age. And, and we know what happens. He goes and kills every child under two. That's what he's doing. He's calculating. If they can't find him, I just get to wipe out that whole area. He sent, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I may go and worship him too. And he's deceitful. This is all Herod. Perfect illustration of him. Perfect illustration of someone who's just gone and given themselves to evil. And after they heard that, 
After they uh, heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is something, you know, we're, we're very familiar with this, but I want to I wanna just dig into a couple things. First of all, Matthew gives us a cl- some clues here that don't, aren't read, necessarily readily apparent. I mean, the word overjoyed in, in, in English, it's, it's a good word, overjoyed, an abundance of joy. It's four words in the Greek. It's four words in the Greek. In the Greek, it says they rejoiced. And then it says with joy. And then it says, with great joy. And then the, the, uh, it says, uh, oh man, I lost my spot here. Um, duh. <laughs> I hate it when I do this. Uh, okay, here we go. It, it, it's great joy. And it, then it says, they rejoiced <laughs> with joy, with great joy, with exceeding joy. This is one of the beauties of the Greek language. You can just tack on adjectives. It's okay. It reads fine that way. And what did he do? He repeated the word joy twice. Double always means extra emphasis. And then he said, oh, but it's a mega joy. It's a great joy. And then he said, it's an exceeding joy. Exceeding is this word that that has this idea of the joy that overflows, that, that, that it just comes out. You react. You can't help it. You ever seen a little kid that suddenly gets super happy, right? What happens? You know, like that. Now, I'm not saying the wise men, you know, got off their camels, because you know if they're on camels. And then they walked in and they went, whoa, you know, I don't, it's not necessarily that, that seems almost sacrilegious, I shouldn't do that. But what it is, is this idea, they were just overflowing. They were overwhelmed. It would be like the Redskins winning the Super Bowl. Not the Redskins. The Commanders winning the Super Bowl. Best thing that could happen to the United States of America, as far as I'm concerned, right? It was something crazy like that. It just, and what is Matthew doing here? Matthew is painting us a picture, and he's trying to emphasize this is joy that is you, you, unbelievable. They know that they're in the presence of something incredibly special. There's something, in a sense, supernatural going on here. And they recognize it. Why? Because their reaction is this incredible joy. And then they worship. They worship. Now think of this. This is a, this is a powerful thing going on here. These are Gentiles. These are pagans. They would be looked down upon by the Jews. It would be considered righteous to hate them. And they have fallen down on their hands and knees to worship. Because that's what worship often was expressed in those times. Worship was a falling down, a prostrating yourself on the ground. And they worshiped. And I think this, this probably is one of the earliest times where we see God is interested in the whole world. The Gentiles, everyone is going to be a part of this family. They can come and worship. And that leads me to think about are there people that we hate? Are there people 
we look down on. Jesus came for them. When you denigrate and you mock other religions, other races, other political stands, other people from other places, you're going exactly against what Matthew is trying to show to us in this passage. These people came. Jesus is for them, and he loves them. And they came with gifts. Worship always leads to gifts. Throughout Scripture, all right? Worship always leads to gifts. And they came with gifts. We all know those gifts. I was reading the other day, um, this guy wrote about his son was in a little school play, and he was one of the three wise men. And they were all four-year-old boys, uh, these three wise men. So one comes in and says, I brought you gold. And the other one comes down and says, I brought you myrrh. And the other one says, Frank sent this. <laughs> and it was a kid, he couldn't figure out what frankincense meant, so he just came up with his best idea. But they came with, they came with gifts. And, and this is something we see all the time. But here, they brought, and a lot of people make a big deal out of these gifts. I think there's something we can pull out of this. Gold is, is oftentimes a, a symbol, a gift for a king. Frankincense was, the, the, uh, was used often in the temple by the priests in their worship time. So it had a very priestly meaning. Uh, myrrh is an interesting one because myrrh was sometimes medicinal, but, but it was, it was uh, super expensive. And so it was mainly used in embalming dead people. It was a sign of death. But, uh, and so it's a, somewhat of a puzzling gift. I don't think we can get too much out, out of it, but here's something I think we can, actually. And this is God's wisdom in, in, in all of this going on. You know the story. Not long after this, J uh, Joseph and Mary, with baby Jesus, head to Egypt. They head to Egypt because their lives, the life of their child, of Jesus is being threatened by Herod, and uh, he massacres children in his uh, endeavor to keep someone from succeeding him. But here's the thing. I started thinking about this. What country, what country uses, would be the most involved, as far as we know, in the world with embalming? Because they believed embalming was the gateway to the afterlife. Egypt. They gave a gift that would be the most expensive in Egypt. They gave gifts not of money, but of things that would translate into money wherever you went in the world. They, I don't think they understood this, but those wise men uniquely prepared that family for living for an extended period of time without having any financial means. With gold and frankincense and myrrh, they were equipped to live, and, uh, and they didn't have to suffer or struggle or starve. It was evidently, as far as we could tell, it would have been a fantastic amount of money. I, I'm interested in the fact uh, they, they weren't stressed about giving. They didn't seem to be anxious. They gave it with great joy. They couldn't contain it because worship always involves giving. All the way back in the beginning, worship involved bringing a gift. First thing we see is Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God as a part of their worship. We see Abraham along his journey. When God called him to this land that he would show him, he built altars and sacrifices. He worshiped and gave along the way. The Israelites would bring their offerings to the tabernacle and then to the temple. And the early church continued this. They would pass a collection to pool their resources to give to the poor or to plant new churches. And it is true to this day. We have 
offering that comes, people can give online, people can give by check. We have a basket back there. And it's the same idea that's been going on and on along. Worship involves giving gifts. Giving is worship. That's a part of it. But the question is why? You know, I get this every once in a while. Somebody says, why is God like needy? In his infinite power, does he lack resources? Is this the way he gets us to demonstrate our loyalty or our love? No. The Magi brought their gifts because they, dis- they discovered a very different kind of king, different kind of God. And this is important for us to understand in that culture. In the Near East, all around Israel, people believed very differently concerning gods. They believed the gods were easily angered. They were easily irritated. They were difficult to appease. They had sometimes gross and horrific appetites that needed to be satisfied by human sacrifices or human gifts. So they would bring offerings. Sometimes they would sacrifice even a child, basically just to appease a God or to bribe them to bring fertility, to bring rain. They would bring their gifts to appease the God so they could avoid punishment or some sort of divine retaliation. You understand here, there's no relationship going on. It would, they, that wouldn't even occur to them. There's a historian, his name is John Walton. He wrote, he wrote this, the gods in the ancient world were not the object of enthusiastic pursuit. The people sought the gods for protection and assistance, not relationship. See, there's no relationship. Why? Because they couldn't know these gods. You couldn't love these gods, and those gods certainly didn't love them. Those gods loved themselves, and they were all about their own needs. And this was norm in every single culture in the, in the Near East, except one. There was this little nation of former slaves and exiles called Israel who claimed that there was one God, Yahweh, and he had no needs. He was self-sufficient. He was not easily angered or irritated. He could not be bribed or bought out. He was not demanding or impatient. They believed They defined God, actually. They understood his primary function was to be a provider, a giver, a lover. And we see this throughout Scripture. God gave them the earth to inhabit from the very beginning. God gave them relationships to enjoy. God gave them his wisdom to live their lives well. God gave them his presence so they would not be alone. The primary action of God over and over and over is this act of giving. And if you say, well, that's easy for him to do because he has infinite power and resources, it's not that costly to him. Then you're forgetting what Christmas is all about. Because here we discover that God gave the one thing he only had one of. And it's a real gift, a sacrificial gift, a costly gift. And it teaches us, it paints for us this amazing picture of this God who wants to give, this God who lives to give, this God who finds joy in giving. And this is why we see this illustrated in the Magi. They were overjoyed. They bring their gifts. They've discovered something entirely different from what they were used to. This God, this God of Israel, the God of Christmas, the God Jesus, he is the ultimate revelation of life and grace. This is a gift that must be received. This is a gift that involves repentance and giving ourselves to him. They probably didn't understand all of this, but they, a lot of this, but they knew, they had this sense that there is something incredible going on here and their behavior shows it. 
But now, if we look at that and we say, okay, that's interesting, Bob, so what? So what? Okay, the wise men came, nice gifts, thoughtful. Put a lot of planning into their Christmas gifts. Well, let's get three things. Three things that will impact us. I want you to see these. I think, I think they're important. They're from this passage. First of all, they gave intentionally. They gave intentionally. They gave on purpose. They gave thoughtfully, strategically. They traveled hundreds of miles to give these gifts. This was not an accident. This is not an emotional response to a church service where they've been pressured to give. Because I know there's a chance that some of you might be thinking, oh, great, Bob's talking about giving. I thought he'd be talking about Santa or the Grinch or something Christmassy like that. I picked the wrong weekend to come to church. I wasn't even sure I wanted to come anyway, and I came on giving weekend. Sorry. <laughs> there, all right? We're even. We are to be givers because we have a God who's a giver. It's not an obligation. It's not a burden. It's not a pressure. He's saying, this is the way I want you to live. This is the best way to live. This will give you the most fruitful, the most joyful, the most significant life, because the Bible doesn't say for, that God used the world, so he took. It doesn't say that. He loved the world, so he gave, and we're made for this. Even when sometimes it seems counterintuitive, we are made to be this way. And I tell you, I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of this church community. You're giving. When you think about this, this Christmas, people are being fed because of your giving. People are getting clothes because of your giving. Children with incarcerated parents are getting presents because of this community. Navajo children in Arizona are getting presents this Christmas because of this community. In different parts of the world, needs are being met. The gospel is being preached because of your giving. Lives are being changed because of your giving, because of your serving. Port, we go, we give the people struggling the most on this earth in their lives that we know of around here anyway. I mean, these people are struggling with addictions, with problems, with mental health issues, all these things. And suddenly these people, they don't even know them. They don't even know them. And they come in and they give them a warm, delicious meal. If you don't believe me, sign up for, sign up for, uh, for helping with the, with the dinner Mark Boinga cooks a delicious meal. We get responses every year from the port people saying, this meal is, this is so good. Do you guys spend a lot of money on this? No. Well, some. Anyways, they get a warm, delicious meal. They get a safe place to sleep the night without worrying about being robbed, without worrying about being beat up, without worrying about any of those types of things. They get a shower. Every week, medical people come and give them checkups. People come and try to help them find housing. Mental health experts come on a weekly basis to help them through, to help them get medication maybe that will help them. They wake up in the morning after having a good night's sleep and they get a hearty breakfast that's, that's, that's just good food. This, because of you, these things are happening. And so with all these things, and and. I understand giving can extend far beyond financial giving. Giving can be done in so many creative ways. Giving inclusivity to someone who's marginalized or forgiveness to someone who needs to be forgiven or acceptance to someone who's unaccepted or something. giving someone encouragement or a compliment or just someone who just needs help that way. That's fine. But we understand also in our culture, things happen because of finances. 
And giving in that area changes people's lives. And so they gave intentionally. Let me show you what else they did. They gave extravagantly. And we, we can worship by giving. It's not measured. It's not measured by the worth of the gift. It's measured, in a sense, by how much it costs you. In Luke 21, Jesus is at the temple treasury and people are coming in. And it was the habit, Josephus tells us, it was the habit of the rich Pharisees to come in and drop the coins. Bink, 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 one at a time. Bink, bink, look at me, look at me. It's like having a four-year-old, right? Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm so great. Look at me. My four-year-old grandson, I went and watched him play soccer a few times in the little tot league where they all just gather in one little ball you know, and they all fall all over each other. And he wants, every time he desperately wants to be the goalie. So they put him in for one quarter. He's not watching. He's horrible. He's horrible. First of all, he's afraid of the ball. It's not a good sign for a goalie if it's coming and they're looking for a place to go, right? Second, he can't ever remember he's allowed to pick it up. So it hits him and he looks at it until the other kid bowls him over and kicks him on that, right? So he goes into goal, and of course, they don't keep scoring this league, but it was 1-1. Um, <laughs> some of us do, <laughs> right? And he lets four goals in, in one quarter. And then he says, Pops, did you see me? I am so good at goalie. And I said, wow, Lyndon, you were hanging right in there, buddy. I mean, I'm not going to lie to the kid, right? I'm not going to say, yeah, you are good. No, he's not. But... And that's what these, okay, so that's what they're doing. Blink, look at me, look at me. Look how rich I am. Look how much I give. God must love me. I'm so special. I'm righteous, right? And then, and then it says this, this widow comes by and she puts in two, you know, it's very, various ways. It's almost like saying two pennies. She goes in, she goes, chink, just walks away. And Jesus says, see, right there, guys, look at her. She gave more. She gave more. Because it cost her to give. He says, they're, they're giving out of their extra. They go through their money and they get everything they want and everything they want to do and everything that's good for them and all their needs are met and everything like that and extra and extra and extra. And you go, oh, here's some left over. Plink, plink, look at me, look at me. And Jesus said, nope, it's her. See, it's not the amount. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's not the amount. So they gave extravagantly. And people said, okay, I get this. People say, Bob. How much should I give? And kind of underneath that is this underlying statement. Just tell me the amount. Tell me the percentage so that God will be satisfied and I won't, be, I won't feel guilty when you give sermons on giving. Just tell me what I need to do. And see, that totally misses the point. This is the problem with that. The problem is if I give you a set percent and I tell you that's what you give, right? then you work to meet that and it becomes a form of legalism. Because now once you think you meet that, you go, yes, I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm righteous, right? And it, it leads to just sheer duty and legalism. That's not it. Giving should be out of a joyful heart of thanksgiving. And listen, I can struggle with this. I don't know. I do struggle with this. And, and people ask me how much, and I say, you know, the, the Old Testament has a percentage, but that's not really, uh, that can vary depending on what's involved. And I said, you just go to God and you ask God and you pick something and you start there and just see what, how it goes. But it's between you and God. 
And we'll get to that, I guess. But this is one thing I tell people all the time. Keep wrestling with it. Don't quit wrestling with wondering what I should do. Because that means you're engaging with God over something. You're working on it. As soon as we think we've got it all together, we're in a most dangerous place. All right? Third thing is they gave joyfully. And I think this ties in with 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctant or reluctantly or under compulsion. All right? So this gives us some groundwork for giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. And, and that, that word cheerful, in, it's not like, <laughs> you know, you're putting money in an offering plate. And you're just laughing your head off. That's not the word. Right? That's not the word. That word has, is this idea. It's a kind of a joy. It's, it's a, it's a, I was reading what one scholar wrote. He says, it's of a heart aware of what God has done for you, and there's a joyous, thankful reaction to it. That reaction is giving. And Paul explains in this, in this passage, in 2 Corinthians 9-7, he explains for a number of verses what happens after you give that way. He says it brings joy and thankfulness into other people's lives when they receive your gift. It's kind of like paying it forward. And the end result, Paul's telling him, he says, grace and love is going to abound in this. It's going to abound in this. I want to tell you something. There are kids in Arizona who are getting gifts this weekend. Our group is involved with that. Other groups are involved with that. Some nonprofits, you know, and, and the Hidden Springs nonprofit is involved with that. And they're not going to forget it. Some may. Some won't. Some will remember. Some will remember. And I know that's true from personal experience. I mentioned before, we went, went to Arizona last spring. Then we, then we left, we went to Phoenix, four and a half hours away. We went on top of this mountain, the highest spot over Phoenix, beautiful view. And up there were some Navajos who live in Phoenix selling jewelry. So we went to buy a piece of jewelry and we met a person from the Gap. And they remembered, they remembered. They remembered VBS. They remembered gifts. They remembered Bill and Grace Manning. They remembered from years before. When we give, people will remember. God uses it to impact their lives. It blesses the giver and the receiver. And remember, that's what is worship. Worship is responding to God for who he is and for what he has done. And that response oftentimes is shown in giving. And always remember when you give, it's worship. Scripture makes that very clear. And so we can, we can look at this and this, just like we see the responses to Jesus in this passage. We can react strongly in a negative way. Like Herod, we can ignore and become indifferent. Or we can worship like the wise men. Seeing him for who he is and responding appropriately. And I can't, I can't stress enough that it begins, it begins, I mentioned this when I came to Christ, it begins with that repentance where we turn and we acknowledge him. And it, but it doesn't end there. It's a continual lifestyle of repentance and acknowledgement continuing in our life. And we yield to him and we yield to his will. And it means we get involved with things that bring joy to ourselves and bring joy to others. These angel tree kids are going to remember these presents at a time in their lives where they are in difficult situations. Someone they don't know 
in the name of Jesus, gave them gifts. Just like the wise men to Mary. And what happened? Mary treasured, it says, and pondered. She analyzed everything that happened and thought, how does this fit? How does this work? How do I live because of it? And it's for us too. God is looking for people who are willing to give and experience the joy and the thankfulness that comes from that, to worship in that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these three men. Somehow you, you got a hold of them. You directed them. You brought them in this situation to this very point that we're talking about. And they fell down in worship. They were overjoyed and they worshiped. And that worship led to gifts. Lord, help us to emulate them. Help us to be people who see you and what you have done and acknowledge it in our lives and respond appropriately. Give us, Lord, possibly an opportunity this week to worship by giving to someone, whether it's financially, whether it's, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, in so many different ways, but give us an opportunity, Father. Help, help us to have the eyes to see the people around us and who may be hurting and needing something. Help us to be people who bring peace and love into lives that are chaotic and, and, and uh, uncontrolled. Lord, we thank you for these opportunities we have with Angel Tree and with Port and different things like that. Lord, to be able to uh, express in small ways the love of Christ. And God, we thank you for that privilege and that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.